First half is chapters 1 to 3, second half is chapters 4 to 6. It's nearly always as neat as that with the Apostle Paul. He's just a tidy, methodical thinker. The front half of the book, chapters 1 to 3, he'll talk a lot about what God does, God's plan, God's salvation. He'll give hints about our responsibility. Second half of the book, he'll emphasise our responsibility and our duty and what we do with hints about what God has been doing. And it's, you've got to put both together, that God has a part and that we have a part. And biblical truth is that they go together. And you'll see that unfold a little bit this morning, but the emphasis is clearly upon focusing upon God's part upon the Lord. And so the beginning of the letter, as for many of Paul's letters, begins with prayer and praise. Just to uh, go through verses 1 to 2 very quickly, it's a normal pattern for letters in the ancient world because they weren't written like our letters on paper and in env envelopes and stuff. They were in fact written on scrolls. If they were written just on one piece of parchment about this size, then they'd be the size of 2 John or 3 John. That's what page they got written on. One copy, one sheet of parchment. But normally what they would do is glue these pa pages together, the parchment pieces together, and they would develop a scroll, and that's what the letter was written on. Which meant, of course, that when you received the scroll, you would have to unroll it. And if it was like us, we would say, Dear Church in Ephesus, and you'd go right to the end, and it would have the Apostle Paul. So to avoid that awkwardness, they put the author right at the beginning. Who is this from? Apostle Paul. An apostle and he gives a descriptor about himself here he says he's an apostle of christ jesus and it's by the will of god an apostle is a person who has an office a function in the church and it's not just the local church but it's the broader wider church and that's what the apostle paul is saying here to these christians in ephesus who was it to that's the second part author then the audience it's to the saints what are saints now it's common in some denominations catholic and perhaps some others that saints are those Green Beret Christians, you know, they're the ones who have done special deeds. They're super holy. Um, they've been canonised. Um, and in Catholic theology or belief, then I think personally it's totally impossible because to be recognised as a saint, you have to perform miracles. And if you didn't perform any in your life, you have to perform them after you're dead. That's a bit tough. But nonetheless, that's what they believe and that's how they use the word. That's not how the Bible uses the word. The Bible uses the word saint. The word just simply means those who are holy or, if you like, those who have been set apart. Those who have been taken and possessed, owned, identified. They're the saints. And saints are very simply, in the New Testament, believers in the Lord Jesus. If you've put up your hand and said to the Lord Jesus that I repent of my sin... I ask you to forgive me and I invite you in. I acknowledge that you are my Lord and I want you to be my saviour. If you've prayed a prayer like that, if you've crossed the line, committed to him, then you are now set apart. You are now a saint. You've been sanctified. You have been identified as belonging to him and you are a saint. Turn to the person beside you and call him a saint. I notice some of you can't do it and I understand why. So at the end of the service, let's call each other saints. That'll be fun, won't it? Saint Daryl. No, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> and then after the author and the audience, then you get a blessing. And the Apostle Paul takes what is a very traditional, ancient, secular process, and he spiritualizes it. He injects spiritual truth into it. And the words are pregnant with meaning. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace we could talk about for hours. The Bible is filled with 
God's unmerited favour to us in Christ, resulting in peace, peace with God, the peace of God internally, and peace in relationships with one another. And notice that this blessing, grace and peace, comes to us from one source, from, singular. And then it's plural, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's some unity of relationship between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course we know what that is. Uh, we're talking about the Trinity, the divine persons. And here it's just by implication. Grace and peace come to us from the triune God, from God the Father, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, who gets a mention a little bit later on. Just to point out and then move on quickly, you'll notice in verse 1, next to the word Ephesus, there's probably a little letter, a subscript, referring to a footnote. And the footnote in my Bible says, some early manuscripts do not have the words in Ephesus. So it's to the saints blank the faithful in Christ Jesus scholars uh, people love to write doctorates about these sorts of things and I think the best solution is this my solutions are always the best ones by the way <laughs> not always the right ones I'm sure I think the best way to understand the evidence is to say that when Paul wrote it he probably left a blank line in there and so that when this letter turned up at Sunnybank the people would read it to the saints in Sunnybank, or, whoops, in Runquan. Talking to other people, if he's done that. The faithful in Christ Jesus. And so a word was inserted. And so in some of the manuscripts, the ones that we have copies of, they've actually written in Ephesus. And in other manuscripts, there's just a blank there. It's just not there. So that reconciles it. That this letter is a letter that Paul wrote to this local church in Ephesus but he wrote it to that local church and he wrote it to that local church and he wrote it to that local church it's a circular letter I think that's the best way to read the evidence and that just helps us also to take this very significant step of saying this is what he's writing to us these words are for us as well they were for the church in Ephesus but not only for them the uh, the ones who are saints and to the ones who are full of faith in the Lord Jesus well, what does the Apostle Paul write to them? Verses 3 to 14, as I've already said, is one sentence. And I want to point out to you that he's praising, he's very Trinitarian in his beliefs. He wants to praise and bless God the Father. He wants to praise and bless God the Son. And he wants to praise and bless God the Spirit. He refers to the Father in verses 3 to 6, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God and Father, talk about that in a second, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Then down to verse 7, it's in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and he talks all about what Jesus has done for us. And then down to verse 13, and you were also included in Christ, that's us, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So he refers to the Spirit, Father, Son, Spirit. And through this prayer, the Apostle Paul has uh, a threefold repetition of a phrase. It's in verse 6, the beginning of it. To the praise of his glorious grace. It's repeated at the end of verse 12, that it might be for the praise of his glory. And then again at the end of verse 14, to the praise of his glory. So the prayer is, Father, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the Son, and praise for his glory, and to the Spirit, and praise for his glory. 
The Apostle Paul wants us to understand what the triune God has done for us, and he wants us to be praising, giving thanks, uh, adoring and exalting the triune God. Verse 3. I'm just going to quickly work my way through the passage and then come to some application at the end. This is going to be quick. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. The Father was both Jesus' God referring to his humanity, that when Jesus was fully man, went on earth in the incarnation, then the Father was his God, my Lord and my God, is what he said. Um, and he's the Father in terms of his divine, eternal relationship with that same person, the Father. He is the God and Father. Jesus is human and divine. His full title is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is his divine name and title. Jesus is his earthly name and Christ is his earthly function of what he came to do, to be the Messiah. What has the Father done in Christ? He has blessed us in Christ. The whole passage echoes with in him, in Christ, through him. He is the centre of everything, as this passage will outline for us. Everything revolves around being in him. You have to know him. Jesus said it very clearly and very exclusively. No one comes to the Father, except through me. I am the only way. I am the way, the truth, the life. He is the centre of it all. The Spirit of God right now in ministry points to the Lord Jesus. Our Father in heaven, through revelation, points to the Son and says, Behold my Son, listen to him. Everything is directed to the person of Jesus. He is the one that we are to exalt. What has God done through Jesus? He has blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. What does that mean? Every spiritual blessing and promise and good that can come to us comes to us only through the person of the Lord Jesus and it is yet to be ours fully. Right now we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in the spiritual dimension. Yet to await full um, embracement and enjoyment of it, but we have a foretaste now. We have every blessing. A couple of times this morning, I just want to refer you to another author or another passage of Scripture which takes this same phrase and just expands it a bit. For this one, every spiritual blessing in Christ, that's Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Listen to these words. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. There's nothing else that is required. He's already given it to us. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature ooh, and escape the corruption caused by the evil desires. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through these, we have his very great and precious promises. Through them, we may participate in the divine nature. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus. We are becoming like him. God has started something, and that which he has begun, he will continue and he will conclude. Paul says concisely, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And it's right now reserved, reserved for us in heaven, in the spiritual realm. And then he goes on to amplify some of these things. There are two things primarily. He talks about the Father. And we can be distracted by some of the words and miss the point. Verse 4. What has the Father done? For he chose us in him 
before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. When many people read that verse, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world, they get hung up and distracted by the whole concept of divine election, by predestination. Um, but it's not the focus of the verse. The focus of the verse is he chose us in him when, before the creation of the world, before we were made, before we'd done anything good or bad, God said, I'm going to choose them and I'm going to bless them so that they can be holy and blameless. That's the focus. God has chosen us in him to be holy and blameless before him or in his sight. That's the focus. In a couple of minutes, I'll come back and talk about choosing and predestination and trying to put it in a biblical balance for you. But for some of us, you just need to get over it. The Bible says it. We don't understand it. Uh, what did God do exactly? Uh, well, we're not told. We're just simply told here that he chose us in him. And he did so before the creation of the world, and he did so so that we would be holy and blameless. Holy does have a sense of moral purity about it, but the word, like the word saint, same word, similar word, has um, a meaning of being set apart. And that's where the idea of moral purity comes from, that we're going to be different, but the primary word means to be set apart for God's service, that we have been made holy, we are his servants, blameless, free from the guilt of our former sins. I like the translation, without fault. Just remind yourself of who's sitting beside you. Do they have faults? We all have faults, don't we? One day, someday, we are going to be without fault. Won't that be incredible? Because of Jesus. One day, someday, our redemption will be full and complete and we will be wholly set apart and blameless, without fault just like that's the same concept as the old testament sacrifices of a lamb had to be without blemish so too we spiritually because of what god the father has done through jesus the son we are to be without blemish living sacrifices living for him hmm. and it's before him we are his servants we are his stewards that's the emphasis of this he chose us in him to be holy and blameless in his sight god has selected us, accepted us to be his set-apart stewards, set-apart servants. We are servants of the king. What a great honour it would be to be a servant of the queen. What a great honour it would be to be the servant of the President of the United States. What a great honour it would be to be a servant of the Prime Minister of Australia. Yeah, that's testing you, isn't it? It would be an honour to serve the Premier of Queensland. Now, ditch your political agendas. It's a job with prestige, and you're the servant to that person. It is a privilege. Well, we, brothers and sisters, saints, we are servants of the King. We belong to Him. When the angels look at us, they don't see lowly scum. They see you're the servant of the King. You're the honoured servants of the king praise his name that's what the apostle paul is saying um uh, yep then paul goes on and if you think you're getting away from the predestination thing then he hits you with it again in love he says verse five he predestined us to be adopted as his sons again through christ jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will 
We have been predestined. Every time the word predestined is used in the New Testament, it's used that you are predestined to something. Some people use the word predestined, they get it mixed up with the idea of election, of God choosing and selecting us before the creation of the world. That's a different word, that's choosing. Predestined is that God has predetermined that this will happen. Here, God has predetermined that those who are in Christ will be adopted as his sons. Romans 8 verse 29 says that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. We are predestined to a thing, to a purpose, to a result. And so God is at work in us and he has adopted us. He has been sovereignly at work. And it's not about us. It's about him. Because he gets to that first result, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why he did it. He chose us to be holy and blameless. He adopted us to be his sons, not for our sakes, but to the praise of his glory and grace. God's agenda is to bring glory to himself. And if you think about it philosophically and theologically, he is obligated to do so. He must bring glory to himself because he is God. And it's only logically and theologically correct that God honours that which is worthy, those who are worthy who is more worthy than he. So he must bring glory and honour to himself. We are adopted as his sons. It's not a gender thing, but ladies, you will be called, you are called sons of God. Why does the apostle use that language? Because in the ancient world, ladies, you didn't inherit anything. You didn't have any legal rights. And even Mormons today teach that women don't get to go to heaven unless their husband gives them permission to do so. That seemed to have some sort of resonance for some of you. Isn't that sad and silly? No, no, no. In Christ Jesus, uh, there's no male or female or Jew or Gentile. You're all one. You are sons and daughters of him. But from a legal point of view, you are sons because you have a title. You will inherit. I'm going to get off the track here quite easily, aren't I? Uh, Will we still have our gender in heaven? My belief is, yes, you will. Will you be a lady in heaven, a woman in heaven? Yes, you will. That's how God made you. That's how you will still be. And he glorified, sanctified. I'll still be male in heaven. Praise the Lord. Um, Praise be to the God and Father. What's he's done? He's chosen us to be holy and blameless. He has adopted us to be sons. What has the son done? I need to move incredibly quickly in him we have redemption we've been ransomed our price has been paid we've been set free from sin we're in chains to sin we're the slave market of sin and jesus has come along and said i'll have him i'll have her and he pays the price his blood as we have remembered this morning and so we are now set free from sin's penalty we are also set free from sin's bondage we are no longer slaves of sin which means we do not have to sin We still choose to sin because we live in a fallen world and because we've got screwed up thinking up here and so it needs to be renewed by the word of God. But we have choices, very real choices. And so let me talk about these choices that we have and reconcile that with this predestination choosing thing. I believe the Bible teaches that God is a sovereign God, that he is at work in the world. He certainly responds to situations, um, but... He, simply by exerting his power, will achieve his purposes. Verse 11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. We, on on this side of the story, we make free choices. They are real and we are responsible for them. I do not believe that everything is predetermined by God. 
I think things happen that we determine. This is my belief. That's what I think the Bible teaches. God allows us to make these choices and he responds to our choices as necessary. Um, our conscious choices are an essential part of God's fulfilling his plan. God uses us, humans, uh, and our choices that we make to achieve his goals. He is sovereign. He will win. He will achieve his purposes. Somehow, mysteriously, he works through us as we choose to do things as well. We can't stuff up his plan. We can resist it for ourselves, but he will achieve his ultimate goals. God is not the author of evil or of tragedies. They are the consequences of often our sinful choices or of us living in this fallen world. God is not a bully. He's a loving Heavenly Father. He's very powerful. He's very clever. But he's very gentle. Firm, but gentle. Gracious, but clear in what his standards are. He is good and he is kind. And he will judge sin. And our loving Heavenly Father is the one who, in his own sovereignty and the own scheme of things, chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless. He adopted us. He embraced us as his children. What did Jesus do? Paid the price. We are redeemed sinners. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. All of the promises of God to the people of God through the scriptures are now ours. We are wealth, wealthy beyond imagination. We are just awaiting the reception of it. It's like it's like we're living in another country far away and we get news when we're in that country that a very rich relative of ours, a multi-billionaire, has passed away and he's left all of his wealth to us. And we're in the foreign country and we have received news now that we are incredibly wealthy. We don't yet have possession of it. We have the promise of it. It's guaranteed. It's given to us. It can't be taken from us. But we have to make the journey from the foreign country to this country and go to the lawyers and go through the process of getting it. That's like us now. We have been given a, an inheritance in the Lord Jesus, which is ours. It cannot be taken from us. It is ours. Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 1, that this um, inheritance is re reserved and preserved for us in heaven. It can't fade, can't be corrupted, it can't be taken away. It's ours. We're just on the journey from here to there. So we have to wait to get there before we get the full inheritance of it. We get a foretaste, as Paul goes on to say here, that in the Lord Jesus we have redemption and we have attained this inheritance. And what he owns, we own with him. We rule and reign with him. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. Not just saved and forgiven and taken to heaven, but exalted to be leaders and rulers in the spiritual realms. And so praise to God the Son and then finally praise to God the Spirit in verses 13 and 14 who has sealed us he is like the ancient scrolls or some letters where you put wax on the back and you put the seal on it and that seal is the indication of authenticity it preserves and protects the contents of it it certifies that it's real it's also excuse me identifying this as coming from the owner so the holy spirit in us is identifying that we belong to him he now owns us he is the down payment he is the foretaste of that which is to come and so the apostle paul says he is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance the language is rich and deep so the apostle paul prays very simply 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who chose us in him that we would be holy and blameless. He has adopted us in him. Praise his name. Praise be to God the Son, who in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. In him we have attained an inheritance that can't be taken away. Praise his name. And praise be to God the Spirit, who has sealed us in him and who is the guarantee that we will uh, fully achieve and inherit that which he has promised to us. Praise be to his name. This is the Apostle Paul's prayer. Well, what does it mean for us? Well, really quickly, these things. As you read through the passage, you'll see, I think it's at least 11 times the phrase, in him, through him, in him. He is the centre, the Lord Jesus. So because he is the centre of it all, therefore, stay close to him. Stay connected to him. He is the vine. We are the branch. Stay committed to him. Keep him as the centre, as the focus. He is the one that we are to exalt. Number two, the passage says that we have been chosen to be holy and to be blameless. Uh, be that way. Be holy. Be different. And live blamelessly, without fault. Will we do it perfectly? No. But that's the goal. When you wake up, make the decision, make the commitment. We've been bought with a price. The scripture says, therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Let's recommit ourselves to being his holy servants. And the passage says to us that we are redeemed sinners, that we have been forgiven. So just as we have been forgiven, later on in Ephesians, Paul will say, therefore, let's forgive others. And that what God, what God has done with our sin, let's do that with one another's sin. To extend the promise, I forgive you, which means I'll never mention it again. I won't mention it to you. I won't allow myself to dwell upon it. And I will not mention it to others. It's cancelled. It's removed. It's washed away. It's gone. Let us forgive one another. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. All about him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, this passage easily directs us to praise and to give thanks to you, to give praise and thanks, glory to the Lord Jesus, and praise and thanks to the Spirit. Triune God, Sovereign One, bless you and thank you. May you be honoured and may you be glorified, not just in our services, but in our service, in our lives. Lord, bless us and use us this week to bring honour and glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said?